0: Just as a way of review, um, if, we, if we go from the chart here, we, we spent a few weeks looking at um, belief systems through church history, and we looked at pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, and amillennialism. And we settled uh, that we as a church, uh, our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, creedily, Uh, affirms a premillennial view. We we believe that the Bible is teaching a timeline that before the millennium uh, that Jesus will return. But in that study of millennialism, we recognized that all Christians throughout church history, for the most part, have recognized that there's a difference between what we call today the rapture, the snatching away that's mentioned in 1 Thessalonians, and the uh, second coming. In fact, the day of the Lord that's talked about throughout the Bible, that second coming of Christ, is rarely talked about in the the Bible as a a happy thing. It's talked about as the day of wrath. In the book of Revelation, it paints a picture of the wrath of God being pressed out like a, a wine press. And the imagery in that of crushing and destruction is unmistakable. And so... We then backed up and said that if we are pre-millennialist, then that would mean that we have to either be post-trib, mid-trib, or um, pre-trib. And in the study this week, as I've been preparing to teach, I found out that there was a fourth position that I was, had never even heard of before that was a uh, just- from end to end that during the tribulation that God would snatch different people out. I didn't think that it was, it, it, there was enough people who believed it or something that had enough biblical warrant for us to go deep into. It's just something that's uh, an anomaly um, that's there. But we recognize that the rapture we defined as we began is the end time event when all Christian believers who are alive will rise along with the resurrected dead believers into heaven and join Christ. We believe... Because of what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, that the Bible is not unclear about what happens on that day. The text that I quoted in my prayer, when Paul says, I would not have you ignorant, my brothers, about those who have gone before. It seems that the Thessalonian church was under the misapprehension that the rapture or that the second coming had already occurred and they'd missed it. And so what about the people who've died in the church? And so he said, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. For we believe that the dead in Christ will rise first. And we joke that the reason why the dead get to rise first, they've got further to go. And those of us who are alive and remain will join them in the air, and together we will be with the Lord. And so we looked at those three positions. We looked at the pre and mid I'm sorry, post and mid uh, is where we had gotten to, and um, we are now opening the door to the pre-tribulationist position, and I'm going to spend the next few weeks, as we walk through um, the tribulation and and Daniel's 70 weeks, um, we will be mo- looking at it from a position of a pre-tribulation view. It doesn't mean, and one of the things that we've stressed is that... Um, millennial view is the one that probably throughout church history has been held the longest. In fact, uh, I don't know if you've ever done this, but as I was studying to prepare for this, I got s- s- deep down the rabbit hole with the Council of Ephesus that occurred in 400. I um, spent way too long reading <laughs> about that council, but it was at that council in 400 that the church anathematized those who did not hold to an amillennial view. So per the Catholic Church, we are anathematized. Because I think Liz put it best, we decided that we're pre-prees. And if you go online and you try to search for end time stuff or or look at uh, various and reviews, you will read that the idea of a rapture uh, or a pre-tribulational view is brand new. In fact, if I read it once, I read it 15 times where somebody said nobody had ever mentioned the, the rapture before until the 1800s. That before Schofield published the Schofield Study Bible, um, nobody was believed in the rapture. Nobody believed that this is a new thing that people have just come up with, and how in the world can you depart from historic Christianity in such a way? And I want to tell you that while the Word The English word rapture comes actually from a French word, raptura, uh, because we're not good in English of making up our own words. We just steal other people's. Um, While that word is new, this position is not at all new. That is not true when people say that. And so I wanted us to note that Justin Martyr in the second century was the first Christian writer to clearly describe himself, and he described himself as continuing the Jewish belief of a temporary messianic kingdom prior to the eternal state. And Johann Quasten quotes Martyr as saying that Martyr maintains a premillennial distinction, namely that there would be two resurrections, one of believers before Jesus' reign and a general resurrection after. So he was a premillennial. Now, in academic circles, what we're calling a a pre-pre is actually called a futurist view. So... Um, if, you, if you want to talk to somebody who's fancy, you can't say pre-pre. They won't know what you're talking about. You, you use the term futurist. So futurism is a Christian eschatological view that interprets the book of Revelation, and the book of Daniel, as future events, and it interprets them in a literal, physical, apocalyptic, and global context. Now let me unpack that a little bit. People who hold a futuristic view have the gall to read the Bible and believe that it means what it says, which is a literalist view. A physical view, which means that when John the uh, Revelator says, and 50 people die, that he's not being spiritual when he says that, that what he's saying is that 50 people die. That it's a physical thing that happens. When Daniel talks about the three and a half weeks, and three and a half more, that he, he's actually talking about real, physical, real-time time passing. Now, apocalyptic, when I hear that word apocalyptic, and you probably are the same, immediately you think of like war movies, things just getting blowed up, right? I chose that word on purpose. Joe Cothran's not here to make fun of me, but uh, I think of things being destroyed. But the Latin word apocalypto doesn't mean destruction. It means Unveiling, in fact, the book of Revelation comes from that where John is revealing what's going to happen in the future. So, what we're saying by saying it's apocalyptic, it, literal, physical, and apocalyptic, isn't necessarily that it's destructive, but we're saying that it's been revealed to us, we can know. And again, I, I, th- this description is written almost mockingly. I think that's how God wrote the whole Bible. I have a hard time thinking that God wrote the Bible in an effort to confuse us. And especially since the book of the Revelation is call, called the book of the revealing, the, that word apocalypto is used in the Latin title of the book of Revelation, it seems to me that that's the book of Revelation means to be revealed, right? Isn't that how we should be reading it? So we believe that it's literal, physical, apocalyptic and global, that it's not talking about. Some interpretations of the book of Revelation, Uh, and we talked a little bit about preterism, which believes that that all of everything that's described in the book of the Revelation is symbolically describing what happened in 70 AD. So we believe that it's global, that it does have a near fulfillment, some in 70 AD when Titus destroyed Jerusalem, and some in afar, and that it's future futuristic, which is where it gets its name of a futurist. So by comparison, other Christians' eschatological views interpret these passages as past events in a symbolic historic context, and that's preterism and historicism, or as present-day events in a non-literal or spiritual context. We, by being pre-pre's or futurist, have the gall to read the Bible and say that God's broad enough to say what he meant to say. And if that's the way I, I want to be framed, if somebody wants to make fun of me by saying that, I'm okay with that. It's like I, I watched John MacArthur in a debate on Larry King once, and, and the person that he was uh, debating with, Deepak Chopra, who is a, uh, a New Age, semi-Buddhist speaker that, that makes the circuits, uh, referred to us And uh, Bible-believing evangelicals mockingly as Scripture-shackled rubes. And I liked that description. I said, yes, that's exactly right. That's what we should be, shackled and tied down to what does Scripture actually say. And so futurism is saying that, that we read the Bible, we're studying the Bible, believing that God knew what he was saying, and that when he describes an event in the future, he actually meant for it to be interpret it as a future event, whereas other Christian views try to spiritualize it. And again, the reason why we have a hard time throughout Christian history translating and understanding the book of the Revelation is we don't have apocalyptic literature. So part of it is spiritualized. Some Part of it is when we don't have a problem with the allegories that we understand. So when John weeps because there's no one who is able to open the scrolls and then the elders proclaim there's one and he says the one who can open the scroll is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. We know what that's saying because we know who the lamb that was slain was. We feel like we were almost there as dirty, dirty, Smelly John looked at Jesus walking over the hill and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so we hear that. We don't picture a lamb. I picture my Savior. So we know that's spiritualized. So it's hard for us to unravel the book of the Revelation and get an idea of what's spiritual and what's literal, and we just have to do the best we can. Some elements of the futurist interpretation of Revelation Daniel appear in the early centuries of the Christian church. So the position that we hold is not new. Don't let people shame you by saying that Schofield is who came up with it. That's silly and it's not accurate. But it hasn't been the most popular view throughout Christendom. Uh, Augustine, early in his walk, followed a futurist position, Uh, But then, by the end of his life, by the time of the fourth fourth council that was held, the Council of Ephesus, uh, had changed his position to an amillennial position. It was not uh, the the most popular. Irenaeus of Lyon, who died in 202 AD, subscribed to the view that Daniel's 70th week awaited a a future fulfillment. So we see Justin Martyr, we see Irenaeus of Lyon, we see... Uh, Manuel Lucunza, Francisco Ribera, all writing things throughout church history that we would read and go, that's exactly what I believe. So it's not new, it's documented, it's not a new position. So why do we hold to that? The strongest argument for me and I'm just going to lay my cards out here as your pastor, is hard to write down. And I struggled all day trying to write this down, and so I just decided not to write it. <laughs> so let me explain. Book of the Revelation. Jesus comes to John, starting with first, uh, the very, very first chapter. The Revelation of Je- Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So uh, in a lot of theological circles, people argue that the John who wrote the the book of Revelation is different than the John who wrote um, the book of John. And oftentimes they argue that the person who then wrote 1 John is a different third John. And so on and so forth. In fact, they, <clears throat> I uh, got thrown out of a classroom at Sanford because the professor was arguing that the writer of Third John actually wrote it in the third century A.D. and wouldn't wouldn't have even known who John was, other than what he read in the, their Bible. And I, I made the mistake of telling him that I thought that was silly. Um, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So we're just past the introduction. To whom is this letter written? John, to the seven churches here in Asia. So here we have the first use of the Greek word church. And he's telling us that that's who this book is written to, those seven churches. And then uh, he sees Jesus um, I've always thought it's interesting that, okay, if you close your eyes in your mind and try to picture what Jesus looks like, you probably, if you're like me, see the image. I can see it in my head right now of the guy. Uh, every Baptist church my whole life had usually had this portrait. He's kind of looking off this way. He's got the, the 70s kind of flock of seagulls hair going for him, a blondish, kind of like my color hair, blondish brown. Uh, blue eyes looking off, and that 's what we picture Jesus. We act like we don 't have a description of what Jesus looks like. He got one right right here. and he doesn 't look like that. Um, he 's got uh, white hair and, and a bunch of other stuff that we can 't understand. So he, he sees. Uh, John, he tells us what he looks like. He's got the hairs of his head, verse 14, are like white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice is like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its full strength. Now, uh, I don't know if you remember from when we studied angels and demons, but the Greek word for stars, angels, and demons, messenger, which is used by John for pastor, are all the same words. So um, a lot of people think that the seven stars is is a reference to either the seven angels that he'll talk to and a lot of people, and I, I personally believe that to the angel of the church of Ephesus, he's actually saying to the pastor, the messenger, that's the same word. Messenger, angel, and and star are all the same same word. So if you all want to call me Star Tom, that's fine. I'm, I'm okay with that. So um, his mouth came as a sharp two-edged sword, which you got right here in your hand, uh, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. Fear not, I'm the first, the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Love this. And I had the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you've seen. So we're going to have seven notes inside of this letter to seven churches, to the angel at the church at Ephesus. So to the pastor there, I, I think it could be to, to an angel. It's, it's not super clear. He writes to the church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamum, the church in Thyatira, the church in Sardis, the church in Philadelphia, the church in Laodicea, and the church in Ephesus. So starting with verse 4, after this I looked from that point forward through the, all the way to the end of the book, The word church is not in there again. It's not like John doesn't know what the word church is because he uses it over and over and over and over to the church in Ephesus, to the church at Theratira, to the church, and he uses it in those sentences. If this church doesn't do this, he knows what a church is. But from, and he's writing to the church, but from four all the way to the end of the book, to the last two chapters, the word church doesn't appear again. Where did the church go? Why in this description is there no church? I mean, the letters start out with literal notes to these pastors to tell his church, hey, you guys have got a problem in this area. You need to take care of it. Jesus clearly is concerned with the health of these churches. He warns them, unless you deal with this issue, I'm going to come and remove your candle stand. Or to the church in Thyatira, in, hey, you guys are doing awesome. So there's, there's reward, there's, there's admonishments, there's encouragements throughout the first two chapters, all to the churches, and then in, once we get to four, the church is not mentioned again until he starts his closing arguments. To me, that's the strongest argument that before God finishes dealing with Israel, the church is gone, it's just, it just seems to have vanished as John's describing these future events. And to me, that is the strongest argument and the one that's compelling to me of a premillennial view. The second one I've listed out. So I'm sorry, I, I again I tried really hard to write all that down and I just couldn't. The Bible, and we've said this, sees the rapture and the second coming as separate events. They're two completely separate things. We saw that as we looked at amillennialism, premillennialism, and postmillennialism, that no matter where people fell, whether they believed that Jesus was going to come back, snatch away the believers, and then continue. Whatever you thought, almost all Christians throughout Christian history have believed that those are two separate events. And then I included because I, 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 all of these ring true to me. What the difference between the two are? Believers meet Christ in the air in the rapture and the second coming. Christ returns to meet the believers on earth. In the rapture's description, the Mount of Olives is where he comes back, but it's unchanged. In the second coming, the Mount of Olives is described as being split, forming a valley east of Jerusalem. In the rapture, living believers obtain glorified bodies. In the second coming, the living believers remain in the same bodies. In the raptures, the believers go to heaven. In the second coming, glorified believers come from heaven, and earthly believers stay on earth, the people who got saved during the tribulation. And we're going to go go into great detail about how they get saved and who's witnessing to them. In the rapture, the world is left unjudged and living in sin. In fact, in the uh, book of Isaiah, it says that God has removed the force that is inhibiting sin from the earth. And sin will run amok to the point that the writer tells us that if God didn't stop it, everybody would die. So in the rapture, the world is left unjudged and living in sin. In the second coming, the world is judged and righteousness is established. In the rapture, it depicts deliverance of the church from wrath. The second coming depicts deliverance of believers who endured wrath, those believers who stayed here. Not, they didn't stay here. They got saved after the rapture. In the rapture, there's no signs preceding it. It's described over and over and over again like a thief in the night. There's, nobody knows what's going to happen. People are shocked and amazed that it occurs. The second coming is described. We have an entire book that w- describes what happens before that. The book of the Revelation goes into great detail. This is going to happen, then these two guys are going to show up, and they're going to preach, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen. And then once this happens, then you know this will happen. And then when that happens, Jesus comes back, and bam. The rapture is revealed only in the New Testament. The second coming is talked about throughout the Old Testament, this idea that there's coming a king. We'll see it on Sunday. I always struggle on Wednesday nights not to pre-preach Sunday sermon, but we're going to see in God's promise given to David after David had brought the the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, in his promise, you're going to have a son. And his kingdom will be established forever. Clearly, he's not talking about Solomon. The rapture deals only with the saved. 2 Thessalonians doesn't have any, our first Thessalonians does have any indication that anything happens with anything lost. It's those of us, are those who are believers who have died and gone before, and those of us who are alive, that's the only people it deals with. The second coming deals with both the saved and the unsaved. The rapture, Satan remains free. And in the second coming, Satan is bound and thrown into the abyss. Now, I think there's no doubt, if you look at that list and you, you look at the scriptures that are attached to them, that you could believe that the second coming and the rapture are the same event. And again, I would, I would offer that no one from Augustine Ford, who, the believers who have written, even people who take the amillennial view believe that those two are, are a singular event. And so if they're two separate events, to me the most logical timeline would be that that's during that seven years, the marriage supper of the Lamb is occurring, which is why the church is taken out, and the other thing that's occurring it is God is finishing with His promises that He made to Israel. That God said a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that's gonna ha- that He, you are my children forever. His kingdom is established forever. God seemed, if you read the Book of Hosea, so frustrated with His chil- children. As you read, hear Jesus talk about how in this garden that, that God planted. Whenever I've sent my servants to try, try to prune the garden, you've beat them, you've taken them outside, and so the father said, I'm going to send my son, and they're going to carry me out and kill me. That God loves his people. Even in the book of Romans, as Paul talks about us being grafted in, there's no indication in the New Testament that God's done with Israel. I find all arguments for the replacement theology that said the church has replaced Israel completely uh, unsatisfactory. The church and Israel are two separate things. And so all those promises that God made to Israel, all of the things that God said he would do, if we've learned nothing from studying the Old Testament, it is that God does what he said he would do. He always completes what he starts. And so we see with the rapture being pre, a pre-tribulation event that that seven-year period allows the church the bride of Christ to be reunited with her groom and the marriage supper of the lamb to occur and that seven years to be when God completes the promises that he made to Israel. And so that that is the time that that happens. And so those two separate events, to me, the timeline that we're going to go through fits beautifully. So for me, those are the two most compelling arguments of why I am a Futurist, or again, I kind of like Liz's description of pre pre. I might get that printed on a t shirt. So, what we're going to do, just like we did with millennialism, now that we've established what we're going to do, we are going to pick up uh, next week and start looking at starting in Revelation chapter 4, looking at Daniel chapter 7, uh, Daniel 70 weeks, we're going to start looking at what occurs during the tribulation. We're going to start breaking down the seals and the vials and the, 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 whole, the trumpets and, and what those mean and what's going on. Um, and I will try to be as honest as I can with you when we get to something that I don't know what he's talking about. I'll say, yeah, I don't know. That's weird, isn't it? Um, so we're done with tonight's lesson. I want to open the floor for any questions.